from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Bruce Grover. Bruce is a musician who has recently released a collection of songs called Be Still that you can find on brucegrover.org. Earlier in Bruce's musical career, he was in a rock band called Little A. During the interview, we discuss and sample some of the songs from Be Still. I started the interview by asking Bruce where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up mostly in New England and in India. When I was five, my family moved to India. My parents were educators, so we moved to Panchkani, India, which is a little hilltop town in the state of Maharashtra, about 250 miles up into the mountains from Bombay, what's now called Mumbai. My parents were working at the International Baha'i School called the New Era High School. There we moved back to Elliott, Maine, where they were working at another an international school of sorts, called Greenacre. So I grew up in a very rich and diverse, educationally focused <laughs> and mm-hmm. service-oriented culture, which when I look back on it now, I'm just tremendously grateful uh, for those experiences, living in India and then Maine and these places where there's just a lot of incredible people coming through, musicians, artists, thinkers, educators, who are all sort of geared and motivated by the ideas of that are central to the Baha'i faith, which are the oneness of humanity. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of service projects that went on and all sorts of things. It was, yeah. it was a very rich environment in which to, to grow up. So you grew up as a Baha'i? I did, yes. I grew mm-hmm. up in a Baha'i family. One of the principles of the Baha'i faith is independent investigation of truth, which means you have to seek it out. You're not just born into it. You need to decide for yourself. Mm-hmm and that every soul has its own journey and you know, has to ferret out the truth for themselves. So when I was 15, um, which is the age of maturity in, in the Baha'i faith, I took that concept very seriously and read and studied and um, then decided that this was the path I, I should follow, so I did. Now, do you know the story of how your, your parents became Baha'is? Yeah, they became Baha'is in the 60s. In New Hampshire, they were living in Peterborough, New Hampshire at the time. My mother encountered a Baha'i who was actually dancing in a dancing gospel choir, if, if you can believe that. <laughs> sounded pretty fascinating. I, I don't really know what it means, but she met somebody and <laughs> they just hit it off and turned out that person was a Baha'i. She was very attracted to the principles of you know, that there's one God and that um, you know all the religions come from that God, so religious truth is and sort of revealed successively down through history and that all these religions are really teaching in some ways the same things, but just geared towards the people at that time, the needs of society at that time. So she just loved that idea. And uh, my dad was an atheist at the time, and uh, so it took him a few more years before he sort of opened up to that. Do you know what the transition was like for your father from not believing in God to becoming a Baha'i? What that transition Some was of the, like? 
Yeah, yeah. Some of it, I, I think, had to do with the birth of my sister and her growing up. My mother became a Baha'i shortly after my sister was born. They felt like they needed to give her some sort of spiritual and moral foundation, which they didn't feel our culture was very good at doing, and that the school system and preschool system certainly wasn't doing. So they began to explore different churches and communities of faith in southern New Hampshire. They weren't finding a lot that they were really galvanized by. At that time, a lot of the churches were asking them to make a commitment that they would commit that their daughter would stay in that particular faith. And they said, well, we can't do that for her. What if she grows up and wants to become a Buddhist or a Hindu or something else we haven't even heard of yet? And they said, well, sounds like you should be a Unitarian. <laughs> they went to the Unitarian Church and um, had a similar sort of experience there and then sort of tripped over the Baha'i faith. And the more they read, the more they were just really moved and inspired. So my dad, to answer your question, my, my dad, I think, when he looked into, into my sister's eyes, as I remember him describing it, he said, how could this little being not have a soul? Mm. And so he, he just had to believe that there was some higher power, some higher meaning that was going on, just as he sort of, I, as I take it now as a parent myself, as he fell in love with this little girl, you know, and began to see her radiant little spirit. And so I think that's what opened him up to some sort of spiritual movement um, in the physical world. So how long was it after they became Baha'is that they traveled to India? Probably five or six years they were Baha'is. Yeah, they they were very adventurous folks. I've asked them because my mother grew up the oldest of eight from a farming family from northern New Hampshire. So I, I've asked her, you know, Mom, how, how did you make that transition going, you know, barely having ever left New Hampshire to flying 10,000 miles around the world sight unseen to work at this international Baha'i school? She just, I don't know, had a spirit of adventure about her, and uh, they just they went for it. How, how long were you there? So we were there for, I lived there a total of six years. We were there four and a half years as a family. And uh, my mother was very ill, so we had to return to the U.S. for treatment at the National Institutes of Health in Washington, D.C. Actually, it was very, very serious. And then I went back for a year when I was 14 and 15. Then I've been back a couple times since just to visit. So do you have any stories about your time in India that you want to relate <laughs> oh my God! There's so many of them. From the humorous things like you know having snakes in the bathroom and you know bats that fly in and losing power, or one of the fun things we used to do at school on Friday nights they used to show movies. So we would see this mixture of Hindi movies and then old Elvis Presley movies that they could get cheap, and we watched The Wizard of Oz outside on a bed sheet projected over the basketball court. So some of those things are just so fun when, you know, you look back. When I think back to being six years old and seeing The Wizard of Oz, you know, projected onto a, a bed sheet hung up between two trees in India with the whole school out there watching this amazing movie, you know. So there's things like that which are amazing. But some of the deeper things that I that sustain me now are some of the work. My mother started a few social and economic development projects 
in some of the villages that were surrounding the town that we lived in. So some of those experiences, when I think back, those were just, I draw so much meaning from them now. The way that she went about it, collaborating with the village elders to really see if they even wanted help in the first place. And if they did, you know, want help from these students up at this school, what would they want, you know? So um, she knew that they needed help with education, but initially they didn't want help with education. What they wanted was help rebuilding a road. So that's what we did. We went down, you know, every Saturday, hiked down to the valley, three-and-a-half-hour hike down and four-hour hike back up to help these villagers build a road. But from there, it opened a relationship. So then working with them, eventually we helped build a school. We eradicated scabies from all this whole series of, of villages, which is a sort of tropical disease. And So when I think back to those sort of things as a six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old, I mean, I, I just feel so lucky that I had the parents that I have and that they were into these sorts of activities as opposed to, I don't know, spending all our time at Chuck E. Cheese or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you sounds like you really had a childhood of service. Yeah, yeah, really. I, I, I feel so blessed. So you said you had a gap there between when your parents were there uh, and then had to go back because of your mother's health, and then you went back when you were 14. There was a gap of like two or three years or what, or something like that? Yeah, yes. My father, while my mother was recovering, he took a job as the school administrator of this wonderful, um, it was in a summer school um, called Greenacre High School. It's in Elliott, Maine. So we moved there from India and so he was the school administrator running the programs and keeping the place running. For anyone that doesn't know the history of, of Greenacre, it's a pretty interesting place. There's only a few of these sorts of places left, the Chautauqua Institute in upstate New York and maybe one or two other places. But there was a real movement in um, the United States in the late 1890s, early 1900s, where people were really searching for deeper meaning. And so there were a few sort of conference center-like places that were established where people would come together and discuss new ideas such as global citizenship or the equality of men and women, women's suffrage, these sorts of ideas. And Greenacre is one of the few places that's left um, that's like this, um, along with the Chautauqua Institute, upstate New York. So it's a very interesting that the heritage of it is very interesting. Over time, it transitioned. Um, the founder of it, a wonderful woman named Sarah Farmer, founded it um, with some other friends. And the poet John Greenleaf Whittier named it Greenacre through, um, in, in a poem. And so it, it has a really interesting heritage. But Sarah Farmer eventually became a Baha'i. And so it evolved in its thinking and its, its mission to becoming a place where Baha'i thought was really explored. And so all sorts of Baha'i programming, as well as other programming, has, has taken place there over the last well, 100 and some years at, at this point. So it's just a fascinating place. My father had this job there, so that's where I lived there for those four or five years before returning to India. And what was it like coming back from India to the States, your initial reaction well, it was such a weird experience, to be honest with you. I, 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 having gone back and forth now several times, I've always found it much easier to go back to India 
because the culture is so warm. You stop by people's houses, you're always drinking chai, and there's always something happening in India. So it's a more collective experience by nature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just it's just a remarkable country. And uh, coming back to New England, where you make phone calls to arrange everything, and you can't just drop by someone's house in quite the same way. And of course, the winters are long and cold. It was different. And in India, at the time when we were there, gender was very separate. You know, boys and girls didn't really mix. There wasn't any drug use per se. So coming back into an American junior high school, I guess shocking would be the, the word. You know, lots of boyfriend-girlfriend scenarios. Um, kids already starting to smoke pot and abuse alcohol. and So it was just shocking. Rock and roll, although I'm a musician now, but rock and roll, my initial take on it was, this is crazy music. <laughs> because in India, music is sacred. And uh, I remember hearing a Beatles song that had uh, the word damn in it. And uh, it just blew my mind. I, I was like, these people just swore, and it's on the radio. <laughs> Yeah, stuff like that. So mm-hmm. it was shocked to the to the system culturally. So you were drawn to go back to India to f- continue your school. Yeah. So this wonderful family that was still in India, very close family friends, invited me to come back and do ninth grade. So that was just a great experience to be able to go back and you know see all my friends and be there for one more year. And then I came back to the states and finished high school here. And what did you do after high school? After high school, I took a year off and went to uh, Israel and was a gardener at the Baha'i World Center. They have these world-renowned ornamental gardens running up the slopes of uh, Mount Carmel, where some of the Baha'i holy places are. So I was a gardener there, worked incredibly hard in some incredibly hot weather, learned more about geraniums than I think (laughs) most people will ever know, uh, all of which I've forgotten now, but... (laughs) I knew a lot about geraniums and Delina uh, hedges and all sorts of things. <laughs> Came back to the States. At the time, my teenage years, I had become a musician. My father was a folk singer. So I had, I think, gotten the bug for songwriting from him. Dropped out of college and moved to Boston to play in the rock scene. And found a couple different bands and started putting out CDs and recording and touring and all that that entails did that for a number of years and just had a great time doing it, but made absolutely no money. So it was a, <laughs> it was a desperate time, but it was a wonderful experience. So you have some recordings from those days? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the different bands I was in, you know, put out different albums, and, and we would tour, this one band, we would tour up and down the East Coast playing clubs and, you know, doing radio and press and all that sort of stuff, and... Yeah, it was, it was fun. Got burnt out, or yeah, I I got really sick of the uh, of the rock scene. <laughs> to be mm. honest, yeah. the the clubs are are rough. You know, yeah. it's it's a rough thing, and uh, there's a lot of substance abuse, a lot of crazy behavior. And uh, the band I was in wasn't like that, but still, it's just it, it's exhausting. It's very expensive, and it's very very difficult to make a living. Um, as a rock musician, trying to make do your own music, as opposed to you know playing covers or doing weddings or something. 
So it was just, it was, it was a rough lifestyle. It didn't have health insurance. You know, I mean, I, as time goes by, that stuff begins to wear you down. So then I sort of moved out of the rock thing into a folk thing, released a couple of records that way. You know, again, just played lots of shows and met some wonderful people. But then, to be honest, I, I think I got a little tired of the whole folk thing also. The folk world is a very homogenous world, kind of like the rock scene. So I got sort of tired of that and began to try to figure out how do you reach a wider audience that's more diverse and that's more more uplifting somehow. That sounded a little mm-hmm. judgmental, but that was sort of my thought process, trying to figure out how do I get out of this very sort of stereotypically white world, this white audience, and why are our audiences so segregated along lines of race, and why is music so segregated along lines of race, and how do we move through this and past this? I'm still struggling with that question now. It's not Mm. easy. These past CDs that you've done, can people find them on the web? Well, a lot of them are out of print now. Um, We were working either with small labels or our own labels. For a long time, there were different websites that still had some. The Mm -hmm. name of the band, the primary band I was in, was called Little A. And so we had a bunch of records out. But if you go to brucegrover.org, which is my current music website, Mm -hmm. uh, you can read some about that and find some recordings from past days, as well as the current CD that I just released last year. Right, so that's a good segue into that. So you've released something called Be Still. Right. Now, I notice you have a slash between the B and the still. Is there some significance to that? (laughs) Well, I I didn't want it to be um, dictatorial or to come off like it was telling you to be still, you know? Uh, But late one night, I, I, I think I was going through you know, just a whole lot of angst around my music career and um, how busy and just totally frenetic life is, trying to make a living, trying to have relationships and be a healthy human being. So I was just up really late one night, and these two words floated into my head as I was reflecting, be and still. So they came as two separate words. So I spent, I don't know, I spent the last several years just really thinking about these words, how in our culture, with all of its pressures of materialism and consumerism and just the flat-out need to be able to make money, to be able to, you know, pay rent or your mortgage payment or do whatever you need to do to get food on the table, how do, you, how do we find stillness when we have to work this many hours and have this much sort of of a pressurized culture, one where relationships don't always come easy. I mean, you know our culture. Mm -hmm. It's not an easy time in the evolution of the human race right now. So this was my struggle and continues to be my struggle. How in this frenetic society that takes so much do we find stillness internally so that um, our inward life and our external life and really be aligned so we don't end up being hypocrites, basically, where we're saying one thing, but the way we live our life is actually quite different. So I um, picked a few songs that I wanted to play on the on this interview. Oh, cool. Okay. Now, what I want to do is for each song, I'd like you to tell me something about 
what inspired you to write the particular song and there's anything a listener should particularly look for when listening to the song. And okay, sure. and the first one that I picked was B. And I was wondering okay. if you could tell us a little bit about that song. So this song was um, originally titled uh, Rizwan, which means paradise in Arabic. I changed it to B for the sake of this record to echo the B in the still theme. And the song, there's another song on the record, Still. So these songs are really a, a pair. The chords sort of echo each other. One is B is a little bit more major, still is a little bit more minor. And so this song just felt, as I was playing it over and over again, like it had a sense of being and stillness to it. So it just felt so right for this record, for this idea of what I was trying to figure out with how do you be still and find a sense of being in a culture obsessed with doing and what is the interplay between being and doing? Can you do without coming from a really keen sense of being? And what does it mean if you're just over-obsessive about being and not learning through doing? So there's this dynamic interplay, obviously, between being and doing. So, But this song felt like being. And I tried to keep it as simple as possible. So I just put down the one guitar part, and then I invited a, a bass player to come in, and I, I really wanted something very atmospheric. I didn't want melody. So the sort of undoing of melody here forces a person, in my hope anyway, forces a person to just have to be and not find a melody. Then the, there was a mic on, and I said, hey, l- l- let me just try this vocal idea. So I just did one take of a vocal, sort of soaring vocal way up high and um, listened back to it. And I was kind of like, wow, that fits really nicely. And there it was. That was the song. All right. So this is the song B by Bruce Grover.
the second song I picked, Bruce, was May 29. Uh, And I noticed that that was produced by the late Ken LaRoche. And I was wondering if you had a relationship with Ken, or do you know, maybe you could give a little background on who Ken was and and the story behind May 29. Yeah, oh my gosh. Ken LaRoche is one of the world's most amazing human beings and musicians. He, along with Randy Armstrong, who's a guitar player that I studied with, uh, formed a group in the mid-70s, I think, called Doa. And they were one of the first world music bands to come out of the United States, really experimenting with global rhythms and Western melody, and, and Ken was really, uh, he played alto flute and saxophone and percussion stuff, but he was uh, one of the best improvisers I have ever seen, the way that music flowed out of him, and so he plays a flute solo also on um, another song on the record, so it was just amazing to have him now come into the studio and for him to contribute musically to something I was working on. And sadly, he passed away before this came out. But he he recorded this song. This song, May 29th, is piano, solo piano. So it's his grand piano in his studio in Peterborough, New Hampshire. So he helped a little bit with the arrangement. But this song I wrote, I don't know how many years ago. I wrote it May 29th. is the day that the founder of the Baha'i Faith, Baha'u'llah, passed away. So this song and attempts to capture some sort of feeling or um, express some of the feeling of what it would be like for the world to see that bright light go out. Um, and that bright light being Baha'u'llah, this amazing spiritual being in human form who founded the high faith and brought these wonderful principles related to world peace and unity and empowerment um, and consultation and problem-solving and uh, all sorts of ideas to the world and just the luminous figure that he was. So that's what this song is attempting to capture, is some of the feeling of what it must have been like to be there when that great light went out. So this is May 29 by Bruce Grover and produced by the late Ken LaRoche.
All right. So the next song I picked was Prairie. Uh, again, in this effort to find stillness in my life, late one night I was up and just started noodling on the guitar and this melody just sort of fell out of the sky. I, I don't know where it came from, but it just it just happened. So it took only about 10 minutes to write. And uh, it's incredibly simple. And so I wanted it to stay that way. And at the time, I was playing with this wonderful cellist, Angela Letizia, who still lives in Boston, in Jamaica Plain. Just a wonderful cellist, amazing sense of melody that she has, that she brought to many of the songs that we were working on at the time. But in this one, I said, I don't want any melody. I just want a drone underneath it. So she found just the right harmonic. We double-tracked it so it has a feeling of breath. It almost sounds like some sort of enormous flute, uh, more so than a cello. And so it just sort of provides this foundation. But as we listened back to it through the studio speakers, what came to my mind, the visual that came to my mind, was some sort of vast prairie-like space. And so prairie just seemed to be the right word. So this is Prairie by Bruce Grover. And finally, I picked the song Hearts. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this one, this song Hearts is, a, is an interesting one, musically, because these chords um, were some of the, this was probably among the first songs that I ever wrote when I was probably 16 years old. I was studying guitar with uh, Randy Armstrong, who... We were just talking a few minutes ago about Ken LaRoche, who helped 
produced May 29th and, and plays a flute solo on, um, on one of these songs. So uh, uh, Randy was the other half of Doa. So I was studying guitar with Randy, and he was introducing a lot of interesting musical ideas to me. And having grown up in India, I just my ear was drawn towards um, unconventional chord structures. So this song is full of them. So I noodled around with these chords for years, never knowing what to do with them. Then as I was going through the writing process of these songs, these quotes somehow were among my favorite quotes from Baha'u'llah. And uh, they just seemed to fit. So the melodies just came. Again, it came very quickly. Late one night, I just opened up one of Baha'u'llah's books called Gleanings and just began to leaf through it and find my favorite passages, such as words like this, Earth and heaven cannot contain me. What can alone contain me is the heart of him that believeth in me and is faithful to my cause. And just what a mind-blowing idea. The essence of all that is what some people call God, is not out there. It's actually in here. Mm. And many of the world's beats talk about this. You know, if you look within yourself, you'll see the divine. Just as you look without yourself, you can see the divine. That was just a beautiful idea. Anyway, so that's sort of where it came from, was looking into your heart to find the divine. And then, of course, that then compels the idea... So if I look into my heart to see the divine, I have to look into your heart and see the divine. And how do I do that? Uh, particularly in a culture so rooted in conflict and all sorts of gratifications of one sort or another. So how do you see the inherent nobility and divinity in every person that crosses your path? What does it mean to, as Baha'u'llah says, let your heart burn with loving kindness for all who may cross your path? And it's easier to do that if you can find the divine in, in other people's hearts. So this song is an attempt to address some of those issues. So this is Hearts by Bruce Grover.
So, Bruce, what's next for you? What's next for me? Well, I'm living and working in, in, uh, in New York <laughs> City. I'm happily married to a wonderful dancer and choreographer named Kate Digby. Um, and uh, we have two young children, a three-year-old and a three-month-old. So my days are, are pretty busy right now. <laughs> I have to say I'm not, uh, not playing a lot of music right now, but uh, hope to get back to it. But really, part of what I, I, I think I'm still struggling with is how to apply these ideas about stillness and being and doing and finding the right balance of being and doing so that uh, you can really live with um, authenticity and integrity and at the same time be of service to your neighbors. So one of the things my wife and I are learning about is the education of children. So we have a little neighborhood children's class here on our block in Brooklyn and on Sunday mornings. Some of our neighbors come over and uh, we sing songs with the kids and memorize a little quote like, uh, truthfulness is the foundation of all human virtues. So we have a little melody. Truthfulness is the foundation of all human virtues. You know, so we sing these songs and learn these quotes and try to get these ideas implanted in the hearts of these beautiful little children. So that's, I think, just one of the things that keeps me going here is uh, what does this look like to build community in, in the neighborhood. Well, Bruce, thank you so much. I look forward to hearing more music from you in the future. Uh, well, thank you so much for this wonderful program that you do. It's, uh, I've, I've enjoyed listening to it in the past, and when you called to invite me on to it, I was, I was excited. So thank you so much for all you do. Oh, not a problem, and thanks again for sharing your story and your music. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Bruce Grover, a musician who has recently released a collection of songs called Be Still that you can find on brucegrover.org. I finished the hour out with more of Bruce Grover's music. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
to God.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.